today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A leaked report says that when cannabis becomes legal in, Ontario, in October, Ontario will allow it to be sold by private businesses, not just government-run operations. This, as I mentioned a moment ago, has created mixed reaction. The Globe and Mail says in an editorial that Premier Doug Ford has got this right. This is the way it should be done. Meanwhile, the head of the Ontario Public Service Union, Employees Union says this is an outrage. Smokey Thomas says this will be a bonanza for organized crime. Uh, he joins me now. Smokey Thomas does. Uh, President of OPSU, thanks for doing this, sir. Appreciate you joining us today. Oh, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Uh, how will this, in your mind, prop up the criminal element in this province? Well, a couple of ways. But first, we don't know exactly what he's going to announce. It's like he's doing what the Liberals used to do, float it, you know, leak it out, see what happens, and then create as that final policy based on uh, the reaction, which I think is a poor way of doing public policy. But here, one of my fears is that there's a lot of illegal uh, dispensaries been operating for quite some time, some recreational cannabis, not medical, right? Or some, some medical, but mostly recreational, very openly. Uh, in in spite of the laws, and if he's going to, uh, you know, if he allows them to apply and become legal, then he's just legalized lawlessness, which is of a concern. Uh, Mayor John Tory Toronto just tweeted uh, shortly a little bit ago that uh, he anticipates increased uh, policing costs, uh, dramatically increased, and he wants to make sure the province is going to compensate municipalities for it. Well, he just said Toronto, so. There's a whole host of uh, issues here that are unknown, we, so we don't know what we don't know. And in any decisions, there are always unintended consequences uh, of any public policy decision, some good, not so good. And I just fear that in some of this, uh, they'd be not so good. You raise a lot of points, and I want to get to a bunch of them and a few more beyond that, but let's start with one of the ones that you just alluded to, and I think this is broader than what we're going to be talking about mostly today, but where you said there are, there's a lot of things we don't know yet. There's a, maybe unintended consequences, but there's there's a lot of people, Smokey, that have made a point over the last number of months of saying, look, this is, whether it's municipal, whether it's provincial, whether it's federal, we're not really ready for this. We don't know what the policing is going to be. We don't necessarily have the ability to test for impaired driving with cannabis. Do you agree with that? Are we, are we, whether it's public, whether it's private, are we ready for this no matter who's running it? No, I don't think we're anywhere near ready. And, and you know, nobody fought with uh, the Liberals more than I did. Nobody. I, I could, uh, you know, might be, but I fought with them a lot. But this is one of those rare occasions when I think they got it right. I think they were way too cautious. I mean, they sh- could have shot for more stores or they could have co-located in LCBO stores, which would have gave more availability. But you're right. I, I agree completely. We don't know what we don't know. We don't know what the policing costs are going to be. Uh, the experience in other jurisdictions that have uh, legalized it uh, hasn't been legal long enough to see what the downsides are. There will be downsides. I'd bet my reputation on it because any kind of a drug, there's some downsides for some people. So we just don't know. And uh, um, and again, I just think that Doug Ford, he's re-engineering society here on the fly, and I, I just think it's wrong. Uh, you know, if I could point out one other thing, too. Most of the senior leadership in the big cannabis companies were political staffers, liberals and Tories, and they jumped ship from politics about eight or ten months before Justin Trudeau legalized it. So, uh, you, you know what I mean? So there's well, a lot of backroom interests uh, here with a lot of money at stake, right? Is there? Do you believe, though, that with the unknowns that are out there, do those unknowns in any way dissipate 
if it's public oversight, publicly run businesses as opposed to privately, or is it unknown regardless of who's in charge? I, I would say it's unknown regardless of who's in charge, but you would have more control if it was public. And the reason I say that is, is it's easy to loosen it up, right? If you can loosen it up, but it's really difficult to dial it back once you make it wide open. You, you, you actually give away that control as, you know, political leaders of the province, you give away that control. So what if, what if it is a disaster? What if, it, what, if there, what if the unintended consequences, you know, maybe they're not catastrophic, but they're bad enough that we think, gee whiz, we shouldn't have been quite so liberal with it. Uh, so you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's a very, uh, uh, I think it's a very ill-considered move. And I think he's playing to the Queen's person crawling with pot lobbyists. I can't, you know, I've sat on a lot of panels uh, around cannabis ever since, uh, right from the very beginning. I was actually sat on a lot of panels about a bunch of things. Because my, you know, my my union formed an opinion based on, uh, you know, consultations with, with MAD, SAD, Arrive Alive. I represent harm reduction specialists, addiction counselors, researchers, scientists, all our position which in the government was pretty close, was all based on well-thought-out consultations with groups that have a very vested interest in what happens in society. And he's just said, well, I don't care about that. I'm just going to do it another way. I am, okay. And you know what, your point, I I take some of your points uh, for what they are. The one that I still don't get, though, is that you have said that this will be a bonanza for the criminal element for organized crime, and I'm still not sure I understand why privatizing it rather than having publicly run dispensaries or stores would lead to an influx or, or a growth in the organized crime business? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One, the LCBO, which would be like a similar, the cannabis is going to be a very similar system. They turn away uh, a million people a year, right? Because you can't buy it because you're intoxicated or you look underage. You can't, you, you know. They've been carded and they didn't pass the test. Exactly. Or they look like they're drunkers. Okay. Yep. And, and, and will you have that in a wide open, very, very competitive marketplace, right? Where the, the whole bottom line becomes a profit rather than social responsibility. So I, I think you could have both. I think the middle ground here for the premier would be to say, you know what, we're going to put it in LCBO stores. And then we will look at, cause there are private LC, they're called agency stores, right? And then we'll look at that down the road a bit. But let's give it. Let's give ourselves a little time just to see. And maybe I'm totally wrong. Maybe there'd be no adverse effects at all. But everybody that works in the harm reduction industry and addiction industries, you know, is very much cautioned, even against promoting the LCBO stores to carry it. But I think, given what Ford's uh, promoting here, it'd be a reasonable sell-off that most most people could live with, right? Yeah, and you know, it's funny because uh, I was looking up today, um, Colorado, because they're the trailblazer, really, I think, for yeah. mo- most people would consider Colorado to be the trailblazer in the legalized cannabis business. And they did, uh, a year or so ago, the state did a huge undercover sting operation to find out exactly what you just said. Uh, who Are they, because it's profit-run, because they are owned privately, are they just selling it to anybody? And they found that they were unfailingly incredibly strict. And the reason is, it's such a lucrative business that none of these places want to lose their license by being caught. Yeah. So they are incredibly careful about who they sell to. And that, and and hopefully if he does this, that would be the case in Ontario. But the other thing for me here is decent jobs. Uh, these cannabis growers, uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of new players coming in. But we've had, labor's had some experience with a couple of grow-ups. United Food and Commercial Workers Union tried to organize a grow-up. 
These were immigrant Vietnamese women working for, in theory, minimum wage. They weren't too sure they're getting paid less. And when they tried to form a union, join a union and get some protections, the employer fired them all, went to the federal government, got it declared to be a, like a farm. So it barred them from by law. From Farm workers cannot unionize by law. It's one of those archaic laws the government's never changed. So the experience so far in an industry where you just said there's so much money involved is that they don't treat the workers decently. So you can... See, the cannabis model would have paid workers a decent wage. Some people might resent this, but they would have made a living wage, had some benefits in the pension, and uh, things that I think all workers should have. So if these private operators, right, if they, they – I'm going to give them a hint here, and we probably shouldn't, but if it does go the private store route, if they treat their workers decently, pay them well and everything else, guys like me, well, you know what, you'll take away my arguments. But, they, it, you know, I'm going to be a critic until uh, – until uh, they demonstrate to me otherwise. Yeah, and again, I, uh, the the plan that was leaked suggests that the government will still operate the wholesale and distribution part of it. So it'll be the 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 stores, I guess, become the the storefronts. But it's the the growth, uh, the growing, and the distribution becomes government operated. So d- does that change anything with what you're suggesting? Because that would mean those workers, those Vietnamese women you're talking about, would still be under government. Uh, level no, of no, no. operation. No, they wouldn't be under government. Not on the retail side; it'd be private. So that's that's the that's the difference, right? They'd be privately employed. But the other issue with that is, so all these big growers, right? The huge ones now, because there's been billions of dollars in acquisitions. Everything else take place. They want to run their own retail systems. They don't want to sell it to the government and then buy it back. So that's going to be a big sticking point for Ford. I don't know how he's going to reconcile that with all the money interest here because their I mean, their lobby is incredible and it's very very powerful and it's all you know like i say a whole bunch of former political staffers with a lot of influence so and so if if it goes that route and and they do have to sell to the cannabis control board and then they reissue it okay then they did get to do the see is you want to do product testings. The LCBO do, does 500,000 product testings a year. Recently, they just pulled a whole line of uh, uh, vodka from the shelves because it, it said 40 proof or whatever, and it was like 80. So they unsafe. They pulled it. Well, in cannabis, you can you know you can end up if if the grower uses some pesticides, you're going to be ingesting or inhaling that. I mean, there's regulations around how you grow food. So who's going to guarantee that they don't take quickie shortcuts here uh use things that they're not supposed to use to increase you know to increase the yield to to make more money and you know we've seen i mean let me put it this way the grocery chains rigged the prices on uh on bread for years we just saw that we just saw that what's to say here that stuff like that won't happen i mean what else did they rig the prices on i'm uh, quite cynical when it comes to comes to this sort of stuff what and then you know loblaws rats out his competitors to save his soul so so you know what I mean, like a private a private enterprise. Uh, there are many, many, many responsible operators out there in all kinds of businesses. Treat their workers well, but this is one time here where can you resell a license, for example? So say I go and apply for a license to retail it. Can I resell that license, and what would be the oversight? So there's, you know what I mean. So I, no, I do. Of, I do. A lot of people jumping for joy, and I'm just saying here. Oh, well, hold on a second here. Let's just take a closer look at this and, and see what's really happening, right? I only have a minute or so left here, but th- there are examples of where this kind of thing 
has been privately done. We do have right now, I know in Hamilton there's a couple at least, um, legal medical marijuana dispensaries uh, that are privately run. And there we've seen with tobacco in private businesses all over the place and even alcohol now in, in grocery stores. Do we have any evidence that those have not been either handled properly, handled effectively, handled responsibly, or unsuccessful? Well, I think you'll see on alcohol and, and tobacco, right? It's been around for a long, long time. It's very, very tightly controlled. I think, I think well controlled. This is a new product with uh, a lot of people have no idea, you know what I mean, what it will do to you and, and with, you know, the, how to use it. So uh, one of the things the cannabis stores was going to do was, uh, I saw the models in the mock-ups. It was really quite remarkable. But they were going to do launch a very concerted education piece for the general public because a lot of people have never tried it. And, you know, uh, there can be some downsides. Can I just close with one thing? Please, I asked, yep. I asked one private operator a question because he was complaining that the age, you know, they were talking about 25 versus 19. I looked at him and I was on a panel. I said, sir, if you had a 21-year-old at home, would you say, hey, come on and smoke a joint? He would not answer that question. You, we got to go, but you raise, I think, maybe one of the biggest questions at the end there, and that is, if we don't have even the education yet that people know what is going on with this stuff, (laughs) we go back to the beginning, Smokey, I think the question is, should we really be launching something like this as a publicly or as as an officially sanctioned decriminalized product if we're still concerned that people may not know how to use it? That's a discussion for another day, but listen, I, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. That is uh, Smokey Thomas, the president of OPSU. Uh, This goes to the leaked report that the government will allow private industry to handle marijuana. Agree? Disagree? You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Later today, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Mayor John Tory of Toronto will be showing up at the funeral of the young woman who was murdered, uh, one of the two, who was murdered in the Danforth shooting the other day. Now, Reese Fallon was her name. You probably know the story. I hope you know the story. I was on vacation last week and we know the story. You can't not know the story. It's a terrible, horrible story that involves mental illness and handguns and unfortunately people being injured and killed. Just a a disaster all around. Uh, and by the way, you also probably know about Reese Fallon because she was about to head to McMaster in the fall to become a nurse. So it's, uh, we have a connection here for what that's worth, but it's horribly tragic. The entire story from start to finish is a horribly tragic, terrible, devastating loss and waste of life. So there, there's no, with what we're going to talk about, this is not in any way diminishing the loss. It's a horrible, horrible thing. If you were a parent, if you could possibly wrap your head around losing your child, you, can, you can't even begin to understand what these parents are going through right now and will be going through for a long time. But it did, when I saw the news today that Trudeau and Tory and possibly others were going to be showing up, it did make me ask the question, why do... Some politicians show up for some funerals. And I don't want to be totally cynical, but maybe that's my default position. Because I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, well, just a second. Uh, This, as horrible and awful and gut-wrenching as this story is, and it is, is it more so than 
that of a parent who has lost a child after a long battle with cancer? Is it worse, more traumatic, more horrible than a child who loses his or her life to being hit by a car or drowns in a pool or pick your horrible situation? But politicians generally don't show up for those funerals. There's no cameras there. Is that really it? There's no publicity there. That can't really be it, is it? Like, we can't be that cynical to think that it's about that. Well, let's find out. Michael Tobe is a Troy Media syndicated columnist. He's a Washington Times contributor. He joins us now. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Am I the worst person in the world filled with such abject cynicism that, uh, that I think these things sometimes and I'm completely wrong, or is there something to this? Gee, I always thought that was my title. Okay, um, <laughs> good. You've, you've, you've actually taken it over from me. But no, you're not cynical at all. Uh, unfortunately, that is kind of part and parcel with the way politics operates. Now, the one thing I should say from your intro that I, I take a little bit of umbrage to is that no matter who the prime minister is, be it a liberal or a conservative, and I worked formerly for Stephen Harper, who was a conservative, they do go to events and different sorts of events where there isn't an enormous amount of media exposure. Sometimes it's smaller meetings, gatherings, speeches, one-on-one meetings, um, tea with certain people who are of some prominence, say, with the political party that they represent. So we don't hear a lot of those things because basically, you know, there isn't the need for a great amount of media exposure. But unfortunately, yes, it's really true, and it doesn't matter what the political stripe is, a national leader of any sort, and beyond Canada too, include the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, all around the world, they are naturally going to go to events like this because they know that there's going to be a lot of press, there's going to be a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of photo ops, there will be TV interviews, radio interviews, newspaper interviews, etc. And for that reason, whether people like it or not, that's what naturally attracts national leaders to certain things. I mean, natural disasters, you know, floods, hurricanes, earthquakes, typhoons, etc. Those are sorts of things that come out. In the case of here, of what happened in Toronto in the Danforth area, because of this funeral proceeding and because of the magnitude of the event, it was expected at some point that Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, would show up, and they were going to naturally show up because it's the sort of event that a world leader would go to because it was a because it was a tragedy on a national scale. The issue that I really have, Scott, is where was he days ago? That's what really bothers me about this whole thing. You know, I know he was on vacation. We've seen pictures of him with his surfboard and his swimsuit wandering around, and no one is begrudging him for having a short break. That's perfectly fine. But in the case like this, especially when the Liberal Party of Canada and many of the spin doctors or mandarins, if you wish, who knew how important this issue was, how tragic it was, as you directly said, and how awful it was, not just for the city of Toronto, but for the whole country in general, you interrupt your vacation, you go to this vigil, or you go early on to the Danforth just to at least show up with people as other politicians did, including Ontario Premier Doug Ford, Toronto City Mayor John Tory, etc., and that's where you actually go to meet the, you know, meet and greet people, go in front of the cameras, have your interviews, etc. To wait for a week, I think, is really, to me, a lot worse. And I know that obviously a lot of people are going to defend Justin Trudeau in some way, shape, or form, including a lot of liberal partisans. 
saying that, well, he was on vacation, how could he? Well, if you look historically at many different examples, including in Canada, when events like this happen or when tragedies like this happen, you go immediately to the event, then you go back to your vacation, finish it off, and then return. He could have also done this with the funeral as well. He could have shown up last week, briefly gone in for an hour or so, left, and then come back for this funeral. I think it would have actually looked less cynical. In fact, that's where I really see the cynicism, that he's coming in days after the fact, when as the prime minister of this country, he should have been there right away. Uh, you said a few things there that I want to get to. One of them, right off the bat, where this is not a partisan thing. I'm not picking on Justin Trudeau. John Tory is a, is a Tory. He's a conservative. This is this covers all stripes. Every prime minister, every premier, every mayor has done this. This is not about one particular party. And the other thing, I don't actually believe that politicians are monsters. I do believe they have human <laughs> compassion. There is. This is not a case where I believe they are just looking entirely only looking for media attention but it does seem michael that again uh it's the big covered ones that we see them at now maybe that's where it's expected maybe this is where the thing gets tricky for them because if they show up people like me and you say they are opportunists and if they don't show up other people say yeah but look at them they're cold you know heartless people who don't even show up for a funeral Mm mm-hmm Look, I, no one is saying that politicians are monsters, to use your term. Not at all, and I certainly don't think that myself. I also don't think it is wrong for a politician to show up at a major event, and for reasons that may not necessarily include sympathy, empathy, etc., because that is part of the job. I mean, it's not just this country. You take any world leader in any part of this, in any situation, any part of this international sphere, they're going to go to particular events Yes, to show comfort as a national leader, but also they realize that there's going to be a lot of media exposure around them, and that is just sort of, it's part of the day-to-day nature of being a leader of any sort. It doesn't matter whether you're a mayor, whether you're a premier, whether you're a prime minister, or something different abroad. That's just part of your duty, is to go out there. And whatever the reason or rationale is, doesn't matter all that much, because even if they are feeling horrible, even if they are sympathetic to the cause, even if they feel it's a national tragedy, as what happened in the Danforth in Toronto, they're still going to go there and realize that people are going to circulate around them, and there will be lots of media that are going to hover around them. That's just part of the job. But that, so, that, to me, is the cynical part that comes out of me, because if they are at a funeral, it becomes about them rather than the person that is being honored at the memorial service. That That's the cynical part to me. That because If I am a leader of any stripe who mm-hmm. goes to this kind of thing, this now becomes a story about them. Well, it's unfortunate, but unfortunately, that's, that's just the way life works, and there's nothing much you can do about it. it you're right. It should be about Reese Fallon. I'm not denying that, and the focus should be primarily on her. But if you actually look, for example, <clears throat> at the media coverage, or at least if you go on to the Internet, social media, the discussion is, yes, Ms., you know, Reese Fallon's name is obviously being mentioned for reasons because of what happened to her and her untimely death and how terrible it is for her family, her friends, her loved ones, etc. At the same time, more coverage is being given, I'm afraid, to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau showing up there, Again, because it's a public figure, it's a national event, and that's just sort of the way life works. There's not really much you can do about it. But I'm not faulting politicians for, 
you know, going there for different reasons. And I don't think any of us should. I mean, it's easy to hate politics and hate politicians, and that has obviously been growing, as you and I and many others know. You know, it's been growing exponentially for probably for the last, well, certainly 40 to 50 years. And it's just getting worse and worse based on the number of voting numbers and other things and just the general disinterest or malaise it is <clears throat> that exists in politics in general and how people just don't keep up to date with things or care as much or just believe that politicians, that, you know, that the, the political left, the political right, none of this matters in the end. Once they get into office, they only do one thing, and that's for themselves. That sort of cynicism that we're talking about is going to exist no matter what, and there's no way to actually remove it. But I certainly do not think politicians are monsters that way. I don't think it matters if they have other motives for being there. The important thing is that they show up to this event, and whatever they feel in private doesn't matter as much to me. It's what they do in public, I believe, that's more important. Does this, this is a terrible way to say, I'm I'm, going to reword what I was going to say. I was going to say, does it bear political fruit? That's not what I mean. Does 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 this make them to the public seem more human and less political if they go to something like this? I don't know, and I, I think if we had had this discussion in another decade, I think that would have actually been a rational type of you know, a discussion that we could have one-on-one and sort of say, you know, is there, is there, are there ulterior motives? Are, there, you know, are we looking too harshly at people? Unfortunately, the way politics operates in that right now, Scott, and it's fair to say, and remember, I'm a person who has worked in politics either as a speechwriter for a prime minister or just general things for a political party. I've worked, written, helped out ministers and other things for close to 20, 25 years in total, although I don't do as much of it now. Um, I just know that, unfortunately, behind the scenes, a lot of things that do happen and occur, yes, they do it out of sympathy and empathy in certain instances, but in others, they just realize the cameras are rolling. You can obviously sit there and say how terrible these people are. This is why I don't want to run for politics. You know, how can I go out and vote for people like this? Or to use your term, they just, they're just acting like monsters. Or you can realize that if you were in their shoes and had to go to certain events and do certain things, that a lot of things would be swirling around you and a lot of different ways to either add your voice, <clears throat> add an opinion, or simply to be there and speak to others, or, in this case, speak to the cameras as well, I don't find any of this wrong. And I guess part of it is because I've been exposed to politics for so long and politicians for so long that it probably doesn't bother me or it doesn't faze me the same way it does for people who've never spent a day in politics in any way, shape, or form. But on the other hand, as I said before, I think that it's important that leaders no matter what they do, no matter what exactly they represent in politics, that they go out there and meet with the people, meet with the media, you know, uh, do whatever they're supposed to do, attend funerals, as Mr. Trudeau's going to do today. These, again, are all parts of the job. And I know that I'm sort of spinning in different circles or trying to sort of move away from the question. No, no. And and I think, look, I, I think that there are times, despite my cynicism, I think there are clearly times we can look at very specific cases where a leader, a politician attending a funeral has had a massively beneficial and impactful 
reaction. Look mm-hmm. at Bill Clinton after the Oklahoma City bombing. He was That's lauded right. up and down for the way he handled that and for the comfort that he brought. Uh, George W. Bush, for whatever people's feelings are on him after 9-11, he was lauded for the way he handled those funerals in that That's situation. He was. There are times when they can do amazing, wonderful things with their platform. Sure. Um, well, Justin Trudeau's career was also made that way, Scott. With his father. Different trade, with his father, exactly. Yep. Yeah, with his father. And so, yeah, it's now there's also, uh, there. look, look, there are clearly exceptions. We only have a minute left here. There are clearly exceptions to this. I think that my cynicism vanishes if it is somebody who has served the country. If it's Nathan Cirillo, for example, who has been uh, you know, in uniform. Every politician should be there for something like that. If it's yeah. someone who, in a culturally significant way, Gore Downey, for example, I look and I go, okay, you know what? That makes all the sense in the world. They impacted Canada. Mm-hmm. I don't question that kind of stuff at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I wish I wasn't quite so cynical about this whole thing otherwise, that it is that it is the transparent, there are cameras, so let's go. Well, you know, I'm not going to judge what a person's motives are, but I, I have a hard time not wondering. Let's just put it that way. No, sure. And I think everyone does. And I think it's healthy to actually think of these things. Yes, it makes people angry. It makes them sort of disgusted of the way politicians or politics may operate. But on the other hand, you have to be fair about it and that there are people who go there for balanced reasons. And obviously, Justin Trudeau is going there for two reasons. One, I, you know, whether people like it or not, there's going to be a lot of immediate exposure on him, and they're going to follow his every move. But on the other hand, it's also the right thing to do as a leader to go there. Plus, you have to be fair about him. We'll add a third one. He may want to be there, and that's just it. There are politicians who want to do good, who want to work hard, who want to show up, you know, maybe for reasons that maybe benefit them a little bit in the end, but to also be there for the greater good. And there are certainly politicians like that, including those in leadership positions. And in the grand scheme of things, I think we can tidy it up this way. There's really no way to know exactly Exactly. why Justin Trudeau is going there, but he's going there late and far too late, and I think that's the bigger issue, but at least he's going there, and that sort of presence is going to at least bring comfort to some people. Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist and Washington Times contributor. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Have a good day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few minutes ago at McMaster, the Federal Minister for Science and Sport announced a $10.4 million grant over four years for the university's Center for Probe Development and Commercialization. And if you're saying, what is that? That's a very good question. We'll hopefully answer that shortly. It's a complicated name that I don't even know what that is exactly, but we'll get an answer momentarily. Uh, but this grant is part of a $79.8 million group of grants to five programs that are essentially designed to allow developers and innovators to work together on their scientific breakthroughs to try and bring them to the people. Uh, the Honorable Kirsty Duncan is the Minister of Science and Sport. She joins us in studio now. Thanks for doing this. Good morning, Scott. It's an honor to be with you this morning. Uh, was my description of what this grant is reasonably close? I thought your description was excellent. We're here. We're very proud to be in Hamilton today. I grew up so much of my time here, whether it was dancing at Dundurin Castle or, of course, race around the bay, which is a favorite for so many runners. And uh, as a former researcher, would be here at McMaster often. So we're here today to make, as you said, a $79.8 million announcement for five programs, one in Hamilton, 
Toronto, Montreal, and Quebec, and Newfoundland. And this is all about taking those great research ideas. We have world-class researchers in this country and getting their ideas to new products and services. And these projects are focused on health and northern development. Is that difficult? Because I'm guessing that a lot of researchers and a lot of business people don't always end up mingling at the same dinner parties. And so there may be a gap there. Is it difficult sometimes to get these research studies funded? Um, privately? Uh, I'm really proud. Uh, you, you've asked a, a number of questions here. I'm really proud to belong to a government that believes in science, that believes in research and evidence-based decision-making. And when I took on this role, my goal was to bring research to the forefront and to bring science back to its rightful place in government. So we've put, we began by unmuzzling our scientists, um, We've put in place a new chief science advisor, Dr. Momina Niemer. If people don't know her, they want to get to know her. She's terrific, a world-class researcher herself. And this year, in Budget 2018, we've made the largest investment in research in our country's history. It's $4 billion. It's the largest investment in discovery research, which McMaster does so well, of $1.7 billion, as well as the largest investment in applied research. This is a good news story for research. And then there's another 2.8 billion for government research. This is a government that's committed to research. So is the idea then to get the researchers who are in their labs doing their thing tied into the private sector so they can monetize this somehow and bring it to market? That's a great question. It all starts with science and research. The researchers come up with the ideas, they make the discoveries. And people talk about a continuum. So you get the discovery, they make some innovation, and then to products and services that will help Canadians. We all want better environment, we want cleaner air, we want cleaner water, we want new technology, which you're talking on your phone, we want new medical treatments and cures. So what this grant does, we hope, will speed up that process from the discovery to the innovation and from that innovation to commercialization and to making a difference for Canadians. Would then the idea be that Dr. X, Lab X, McMaster comes up with this idea that it is able to lead to spin-off private companies that would then bring the product to market? That's, well, that's one possibility. We know with this grant, um, this program has funded 54,000 people. Um, it has led to um, over 160 spin-off companies and 2,100, 2,100. Um, it's an incredible grant. And what, is ha what we're hoping here in Hamilton with the Center for Pro Development Commercialization is over the last 10 years, it's created 100 high-tech jobs. And they think in the next four years, that is going to double in four years. So it'll be high-tech jobs for people here in Hamilton. And we know that jobs lead to other jobs. Those high-tech researchers, those entrepreneurs, they're going to need the services here in Hamilton. They're going to need the restaurants. So we really hope this is going to lead to jobs and economic growth. We're a government that's committed to economic growth and growing the middle class. 
if it is if it has that kind of impact, you must be getting dozens or hundreds or whatever of applications for this. Um, you have a background in science, an extensive background in science. How much of this are you literally? How are you sitting looking over these grants, and how much is it the staff that just brings them to you? Oh, that's a great question. The way we do research in Canada, we have peer review, which means people submit their grants. Um, it's done by expert review committees, so it is arms, it's hands off. It is done by the experts. It really is a world-class system. So for Hamilton to be, for McMaster, to be awarded one of these prestigious grants, that the people of Hamilton should be really proud of this and should want to celebrate this tremendous news. Is there an area of science that the government, that you guys are particularly looking at? I mean, it's, it seems that it's sort of a spectrum, but is there some area that you are trying to really push? Uh, we know that our researchers have the best ideas. They always want to be at the cutting edge pushing the envelope. So they will come forward with their proposals. Uh, there are areas where Canada is exceedingly good at. I think of agriculture, agri-food, precision medicine, regenerative medicine, quantum, whether it's quantum materials, quantum computing, artificial intelligence. I'm just highlighting a few areas because we have world-class researchers like right here at McMaster. Uh, we did invest in artificial intelligence. It was a $125 million investment. Uh, because we know artificial intelligence will change the way we work, the way we play. It is changing it. And Canada's a world leader. And the reason for that, government's been investing in artificial intelligence since the early 1980s. And people didn't really even know what it was by 19, the late 1990s. And now artificial intelligence is at the tipping point. And the world says, how has Canada become so good at this? And the reason is we invested in discovery research for these many years. We built up the talent base. And now people talk about Silicon Valley. They're talking about Maple Valley. So that's a really good example where investments in discovery research, like we've made this year, that, again, $4 billion in research, 1.7 billion in discovery research. I can't wait to see what our researchers Maple are Maple Valley, do. almost sounds sticky. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a, uh, let me go to the, the name of this, the, the McMaster one again. I've got to find it. Uh, the Center for Probe Development and Commercialization. Now, again, you have a background in science. I don't want to put you too much on the spot. Do you want to take a crack at explaining what they do? Uh, this is what they're aiming to do. It's really exciting research. So they want to do better diagnostics, uh, whether it's cancer or heart disease. So again, this is about, with this money, this will create jobs here in Hamilton, high-tech jobs, but what it'll also do is to bring better diagnostics to Canadians. And again, we researchers want to have impact with their work. They want to make a difference, whether it's the environment, whether it's new health cures, treatments. And this is an example right here in your city where the researchers and the entrepreneurs are coming together and will make a real difference to Canadians. I really don't know this. Um, does 
2.6 is 2.6 million dollars a year because that's what it works out to for the 10.4 over four years is that a large amount in the world of research i i have no idea if that's a big amount or if that's a little amount it's it's a large investment and to be able to win one of these prestigious grants is a real it speaks highly to the caliber of the proposal that was put forward by the researchers and the business people together. And again, the people of Hamilton really should be so proud of this. This is an extension, correct? Of Because this grant had been given to this since I think 2008. It's been going on. So they've been getting money. Am I right? Because that- they are accomplishing, they are accomplishing, remember what I said, that they have over the past 10 years created 100 high tech jobs and in the next four years so they will double that again where we this is really to bridge that gap from that innovation to commercialization and here you see an example of a group that's really doing great work and it's working and they're scaling up so when you look at a project like this or a company that's a, or a group that's applying for a grant how how do you gauge is it is it based on jobs because you're not going to i assume just keep dumping money into something that's not working so what is the what is the measure how do you gauge whether this is worth continuing to put Very money good into question this is about an expert panel looks at this it's hands off no political interference it's really looking at the caliber of the work that's being done and so, again, a real celebration for Hamilton. So this panel comes forward and says, I mean, they've done the jobs, but if there, were, if there had been no jobs created yet, but the panel had said, but you know what, we believe that this has a chance to be impactful down the road. Is that enough still to keep promote, to producing this or keeping it, it going forward? It, yeah, you have to do both. It's about the, the good discoveries and the research, and it's also about... Um, moving this along to commercialization to get the products and services. And here in Hamilton, that's about better diagnostics for cancer and heart disease. I think all of us are touched by um, these diseases and all of us want to see better help. Last thing, you you have been, um, if people go online, they want to Google, they'll see your name a lot because you've had a lot of these announcements. There's been a lot of going around the country giving grants to these things. Are we doing well in Canada at this or is the fact that we need to have all these grants suggesting that we're struggling to keep the research going? We have world-class researchers in this country, world-class. The previous government uh, we saw under them research funding being cut for higher education research and development from third to eighth. Business research and development cut from 18th to 26th. And for the first time, Canada was out of the top 30. We saw our scientists being muzzled. We saw research funding stagnating. And we had researchers protesting the death of evidence on Parliament Hill. When I took on this role, my commitment was to return research to its rightful place. And I think we've, uh, we're, we're just building upon 
success after success. Day one, we brought back the long-form census. Why? We need science, evidence, and fact to make good decisions. Day two, we unmuzzled our researchers. We want researchers out there talking freely, collaborating. That's how research is done. We brought back the position of the chief science advisor. Um, and that matters. And now this major investment in research, that $4 billion, and what we're hearing internationally when I was at the G7, what I heard from colleagues is that Canada is seen as a beacon for science and research. As other parts of the world are pulling back from science, evidence, and fact, we are making this a focus. The Honorable Kirsty Duncan, Minister of Science and Sport, thanks for doing this. Will we see you next then in April? I think it's April at the Around it's the Bay April. race. <laughs> yeah, are, are you doing the Around the Bay this year? Will we see you there? <laughs> Scott, I can't thank you enough for this. <laughs> I would love to do a race around the Bay. I did it every year before really? Boston. Every year, unfortunately, some back issues. Uh, but and a few hours of work a week. <laughs> Not as much training time. Listen, thank you for this. And hopefully we'll see you even to cheer on at Race Around the Bay. Thanks for coming in. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.